If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Around the Last Supper, we've been looking at passages from there for the last number of weeks. Jesus talks about many things with his disciples, and particularly talks about going away. His going away from them is first, obviously, his going away in his death on the cross. And there he speaks about the the sadness, the grief that will seize them. The world will rejoice, but, but you will weep and mourn. But then he promises, you will see me again. The joy that you have, no one will be able to take away. But there's clearly another going away that he has in mind, that he's speaking as well of his going away in the ascension. After that bodily resurrection where the transformed body of Christ is raised up into eternal glory, opening the way that we are to go in him. But he tells them that he's going He's not going to leave them alone, that he's going to send them another gift. And he speaks of another, well, our translation was counselor. Others will know it as helper or comforter, maybe advocate, even paraclete. And paraclete is simply the transliteration from the Greek, the Greek term parakletos. Kaleo in the Greek, the verb to call, and one who is called is kletos, I don't know if you know anybody whose name, it usually comes out as Cletus, and then it sounds like some backwater hick, which if you know someone and you have a friend named Cletus, don't don't take that too far. (laughs) I'm inclined to say Cletus because it's that long E sound in the Greek, but the one who is called, put together with para at the start, this is one who is called alongside. Properly advocate catches that well, but that's a little more the Latin term and is not so much one who's called alongside as one who speaks on your behalf, who stands with you, who is with you. On the one hand, it's a descriptor for the the Holy Spirit who is to come. On the other, Jesus says it's another advocate, another paraclete. Well, who is the first? Well, himself. In fact, we'll get to the comfortable words again that those of you who have them in your heads will say, oh yes, St. John says, if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, the one who is called alongside, who, who walks with us, who mediates for us. One of the things about Jesus talking about the second going away, though, is that it's, it's a better thing for them that they're going to do the works that he does and even greater works than these because he goes to the Father. And key to his going to the Father is it's only after the ascension that the Spirit is sent. And there's always a bit of that puzzle. Well, how could they do the works that he did? How could we do them? How could we do greater works than Jesus did? Well, there was only Jesus, the single man in the flesh, Suddenly there are all the apostles and all of the disciples and all of the believers bound together in the body of Christ, enlivened by the Holy Spirit. Jesus could teach, could model, could encourage, could heal, could bring them along, 
But now the Holy Spirit can transform them from the inside, can be at work enabling them to grow up into the fullness of life in Him. Another one of those little details that we often forget about our being in Christ, you know, being baptized into Him, we don't become adult Christians. We are baptized and reborn, so we start as infants in the Lord. We have to grow up in that faith. You might think again when we get to the last gospel today that St. John talks about as many as received him, he gave them power to become the sons of God. St. John Chrysostom commenting on things many centuries ago had said, what he puts in our hands is that potential to grow up into that life, but we grow as we respond to him. We grow up into sonship. You're reborn. You're an infant in the Lord. Well, we have some little ones around us. We know what it is for the children to be learning all the really basic things. It's not until you're around a very small one that you realize that little children don't even know that they're, in those early days, don't even know that the toes on the end of their feet are theirs. And they discover that. They discover how to speak. They discover how to respond. But the Holy Spirit to be at work within us, changing us from within, causing us to grow up in Him. Because the transformation that takes place is to be the transformation of the heart, the mind, the will, the spirit. Greater things than the very things that Jesus is doing. A transformation that that He's not going to do except as He dwells within us by His Holy Spirit. St. Paul will write about the Spirit coming to be with us as, on the one hand, he'll speak of the earnest or the down payment, our bone in in the Greek. But a term for the pledge that you give, it's the promise that the full amount is going to come, but this is the first installment. And when God gives the first installment, we know that the rest is coming. He'll also talk about us having the first fruits of the Spirit which is a wonderful image for regation tide, because we're thinking about the sowing. Well, the sowing of the seeds when the first of the harvest is coming. They were required to bring of the first fruits to the Lord. It was a sign. It was a costly offering off the top because they hadn't seen the full harvest yet, but a promise that the full tithes would come to the Lord's house, that the full harvest belonged to Him. And again, when God gives us that first fruits of His Spirit, the fullness of the harvest of the kingdom of God, the kingdom life, that life in the Spirit that we grow up into in Christ, the likeness to His resurrection, into His resurrected and ascended body. All of that is promised. And in that we hope. When you hear St. Peter this morning talking about being ready always to give Now, it's in my head is to give an answer to anyone who who asks, and that's not quite the translation as we have it. Check your bulletins. Look at the term to prepare to make a defense to anyone who calls you to account for the hope that is in you. Actually, the word for an answer or a, a defense here is, the Greek is apologia. When we think about apologies, um, apologetics, 
not saying we're sorry, but explaining the faith to others. That's very much the sense of it. But for the hope that is in you. And some of you might be tired of my coming back to talking about the distinctiveness of the Christian hope, but bear with me. And if you haven't heard me say it before, well, take it now. In the world, when we use the word hope, we so often mean something that is, that is wistful, that's kind of wishful. You know, I hope that something would happen. Dare I say it, I've often used it over the years, that some of us hoped that this year the Toronto Maple Leafs would win the Stanley Cup. <laughs> well, it was a reasonable hope, I think, but it obviously has not been fulfilled. Human hopes are often what we would like to see, what we wish would happen. But the Christian hope in God is not of that order. It is our hope in His promises and what He has promised He will fulfill. When He's given us His Word, He will do what He says He will do. We have that hope in Him. We know that it's coming. We hope because we're not there yet, not because it's uncertain. Now, I know that when we think about the whole mystery of salvation, that some of us are used to saying, well, I hope to be saved, and we actually mean I'm not quite sure. And yes, you could turn away from him, but the lost sheep that go astray, the Lord follows after, and anybody who's come to Christ, anyone who's been baptized into him, when you pray for that person, when you pray in your own life, don't despair, don't think that this life is lost. Claim that baptism. Claim the care of the Good Shepherd. Yes, there may be, who knows how much purgation needed for some of us, but we can have the confidence in Christ that as He has promised life, He gives us that down payment of His Spirit. He's at work in us to bring us His grace, and we ought not to despair of that. We're not to take it lightly either. But there isn't a one of us here who should get to that space of feeling like, well, God can't forgive me. He can't care about me. What I have done has turned me away from him such that surely he'll turn his back. Surely he has turned his back. He doesn't. We might turn our backs on him, but he doesn't let go of us. His grace is there if we cry out even when we have little hope. There is always real hope in Him. Interestingly enough, St. Peter will talk about being prepared to give an answer. And I speak of apologetics, and I think, well, it's a good thing. The faith is reasonable. We can make good arguments. But any of us who have tried to argue for our faith, and I would think especially those who have been in the realm of public witness for pro-life issues, you can make all the arguments. You can trot out the clear scientific evidence, if you will, about the beginning of human life. And you will not make progress with those whose hearts are hardened. You will see often eyes glass over, and there will be no attention. And even if you seem to prove the point, the other person may just shift to a whole other argument. Some hearts, some hearts are touched, but it's not primarily by our preparation, our witness in terms of how well we argue. Which is not to say don't have good arguments. But it's the Holy Spirit that's at work. 
when Jesus talked to his apostles, you can go to Luke 21, preparing them for things that were to come, and said, you're going to be called to give witness when that time comes. Set out beforehand that you're not going to. Kind of have it all plotted out. Because when that time comes, I will give you words that none of your opponents can confound. And he wasn't saying, don't read your Bible, don't learn the arguments, don't think through the things of your faith. He was saying, don't trust on that. Don't think you've got it all worked out, because it's the Holy Spirit that needs to be at work, convicting hearts and minds and wills. This is Rogation Sunday. We've got that promise of the Spirit who is to come, the one who will bring the good harvest. Well, traditionally, Rogation Tide is a time for praying through the things of the parish, praying for the sowing of the fields, for the harvest that is to come. If you're in a rural parish particularly, you would go around the bounds of the parish. You could go and pray at particular fields, but to pray for all of those who were sowing, for those who were working the land. You could pray for those in their homes, for family growth and such. When you're in the city, it's not that you can't do the same thing. You're not praying so much for the sowing of seeds, although there's a certain amount of that around. We should pray for the green spaces too, for the gardens, if you're around this part of the city anyway and you're contending with the squirrels. They're those little guys you want to disarm a little bit. You don't want to hurt them, but you'd like them to leave your food alone. But we can pray even going about the office buildings. We can pray for the homes that are here. Our parish, our community, because we're the only ordinary parish from here east, we probably have a huge territory to cover. So if you happen to be traveling and you're traveling down east, carry the prayers by all means. On the one hand, there's the external prayer, praying for the things that are out there, that are going on. But there's also the internal. And the invitation for the Spirit to do likewise in our lives, to disarm the things of the evil one, the pestilence, the things that would undermine the good growth, to pray for the blessing of the seeds that are planted by the Lord and that good growth within, most particularly to pray for the opening of your whole life, every aspect, to the presence of the Spirit. One of the things I've talked about before and was was feeding into the, the children, we have an image of the Holy Spirit as a dove because of Jesus' baptism and the dove that comes down, the Holy Spirit that comes down upon him like a dove. And I often say that for we're given the gift of the Spirit in our baptism, And that's a promise of God, so it's real. For many of us, that spirit we keep like the holy bird in, well, where do you keep a bird at home? You rarely just let it fly freely through the house. You put it in a cage. And we've got the Holy Spirit kind of caged up. He's safe then, and we can hear his singing sometimes, that gentle cooing that comforts us. But he's kind of there and he's in our house. Or maybe I'll make it personal. I've got him in my house. He's a guest. He may even be the most honored guest. I might get out the good china and the silverware and everything for him. But he's a guest in my house. When we get to confirmation, 
but it should be there again and again in our lives that we pray for the stirring up of the gifts of the Spirit, for the free flowing of the Spirit throughout the whole of the person. And like the opening up of the cage and letting the bird fly throughout the whole of what's not your house, but is his temple. St. Paul says, writing to the Corinthians, do you not know? that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you, that you are not your own, that you were bought at a price. Well, when we're praying about in this rogation tide and we're reclaiming the territory around us, I would encourage you again to do it in your homes. I can give you holy water if you want. If you haven't had your home blessed, we can certainly arrange for that too, but but to take the water, to go about your home, to go about the property, to go about your, your personal rooms, and to bless in the name of Jesus, to pray for the disarming of anything of the evil one, to, to root out the weeds of sin, but to pray for the good growth and the blessing. Do it in your place of work. Do it quietly. You don't have to suddenly walk around and sprinkle all your co-workers with holy water. You can do that much more quietly. Years ago, a little village that I was ministering in was actually the Pentecostals who were keen to walk through the village and to pray over all the houses. I went about with them and we quietly anointed the drawers of the churches and prayed throughout the village to pray for that whole area. One of the things we forget again is that Jesus said to ask, to seek, to knock. Ask and it will be given you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks it will be opened. Matthew 7 in the Sermon on the Mount. We might say, well, we've asked before and he didn't give us what we wanted. Well, you know... The part of the asking is that same preparation that Peter was talking about. Good to read your scriptures, good to know the promises, good to learn your faith and be able to defend it reasonably. But far more important is where Peter begins. What does he say? Reverence Christ in your hearts as Lord. Draw near to him, walk with him, abide in him. Open up your lives to the Holy Spirit. Consciously, invite him to take down the barriers, renounce any sin, any closing of doors against him, any opening of doors for the evil one to be in. And I just finish with something that you just need to hear over and over again. You belong to Jesus Christ. Everyone who's been baptized into him belongs to him. The devil has no right in your life. Sometimes you'll say, um, well, yes, but I sinned and I opened a door. And the devil will say, "Ah, uh-uh, you opened the door and let me in. If you're in your house and you've got it open because it's hot outside and you want the fresh air in and somebody walks in and sits down, what do you say? Well, what are you doing here? <laughs> this isn't your house. And he says, ah, but you left the door open. Well, no, this is my house. You don't belong here. This is the Lord's house. Um, now, I don't mean I'm closing the door against anybody here, but, but in your own home, in your own life, you belong to Jesus Christ. The devil has no claim. And I'm going to go one step further. 
even those who are not baptized into Christ, even those who have not acknowledged Him as Savior, yet were created in His image and likeness. They do not belong to the devil. They have not yet committed themselves to Christ, but they are not the devil's own. The devil has no everlasting claim. If we turn from Christ, yes, there is a way apart and there is a reality to hell, but it's an eternal separation from God. The devil is not eternal in that sense. He has no eternal authority. But today, don't don't come fearfully. If you need confession in your life, come and make confession. Clear out those things. Go about your living space. Go about your every aspect of your life. Reconsecrate it to the Lord. Invite the Spirit to flow freely through every part of you. Reclaim that territory. Be reminded that you belong to the Lord. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you? That you are not your own. You were bought at a price. Let us ask, pray, and obey Christ's Word and His commandments that we may show that we are His own, that His light may shine through us to the ends of the earth.